Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Jefferson Lilly from Park Avenue Partners, and if you want to learn how to invest into your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chappell, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey there, what's up? Welcome back to another interview on the Build Your Network Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to bring a guy who I was really excited to connect with for multiple reasons, uh, chief among them being that he is a real estate investor, but in a more unique sense. So I can't wait to bring on Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson is a self-made millionaire, mobile home park investment expert, educator, and industry consultant. Park Street Partners owns over 20 mobile home parks coast to coast now, totaling over $50 million in revenue. And they have returns that are up in the teens for all of the investors that put money into their fund. And so Jefferson and I talk a lot about how to invest in mobile home parks and why they're a good investment. We talk about if you should or shouldn't go to college. And we talk about why jobs are actually blessings. So there's a lot of stuff in this episode that you're not going to want to miss out on. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to let you know that I recently opened up a few VIP day slots in my calendar. Again, if podcasting or networking are on the top of your priority list for 2019, if this is the most valuable investment that I have available. You're going to fly out here to Vegas, spend a full day with me one-on-one, either to help you launch your podcast or build a foolproof networking strategy for you for the rest of the year. The whole experience is to you in terms of what we're going to cover and even where we're going to eat all of our meals and stuff throughout the day. So plus I give VIP 
happy day guests access to a few key people in my network who have invested literally tens of thousands of dollars and countless hours into building relationships with. So since opening it up very recently, the four spots that I had opened sold out. So I recently opened up four more spots and one of them's already taken. So if you're interested in this experience at all, head over to travischapel.com slash coaching to apply. And hopefully I'll see you here in Vegas real soon. And now here is my chat with Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Travis. Looking forward to this. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I saw I get a lot of these pitches. You know, I get a lot of people who who come on and you know want to want to share their message with the world through my podcast. And uh, a lot of people they just just uh, don't have messages that you know you vibe with or want to you know put out there or anything. But anytime I see somebody who's done as well as you have in real estate investing, I have to talk to you because I think that it's basically a crucial step to building wealth and. Uh, there's so yep. many different ways to do it. I just had some turnkey guys on, good friends, a lot of multifamily people. And then you have this mobile home park investing uh, company and stuff. So I'm really interested to get yep. into some of that conversation with you. But before we do, let's build a little bit of context here. Go back in time. Tell me uh, what it was like to uh, be a kid for you, for 10-year-old Jefferson. What was life like? That was a good time in my life. Uh, I- I'm blessed, but most of the times have been. But I will share this little tidbit. I, I woke up on, I still remember waking up on my 10th birthday morning and being disappointed. I somehow had it in my mind as a nine-year-old the night before and previously that when I got to double digits, when I became 10, I'd somehow instantly be like two inches taller. <laughs> and I wasn't. <laughs> I was the same kid. I was just like a nine-year-old plus a day or plus 366 days. <laughs> Early on lesson about managing expectations, huh? I know, right. I did not manage my own expectations. But yeah, those were happy times. I, I'm actually third-generation Coloradoan. I grew up in Denver. I live out in San Francisco now, but grew up in Denver. And I was blessed to have a fairly leave it to beaver upbringing, Uh, you know, wonderful parents, uh, wonderful sister, grew up in kind of a middle class neighborhood in a middle class suburb of of Denver and had no idea, of course, as a 10 year old that I'd either be living in San Francisco someday (laughs) or buying mobile home parks uh, to expand the supply of affordable housing. But funny uh, and uh, funny how life uh, turns out sometimes. Yeah. What did your uh, What did your parents do? My folks. My mother was uh, generally a, a stay-at-home mom uh, most of her, at least most of my formative years. My dad was actually mostly in real estate. He was a real estate broker, okay. uh, not an investor the way I am. But honestly, that really wasn't like a bug in my ear that somehow I had to get into real estate just because dad was. I went off and did kind of a range of other things for about 20 years before getting into real estate at about age 39. But, uh, you know, my 20s and 30s had nothing to do with real estate and I uh, uh, fell into it a bit. And it's been good to me now for the last 12 years. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like it's going really well. So tell me a little bit about the mindset around money that you grew up with. Because I find I find it really interesting. I've talked to a lot of people on the show and um, I'm more of just like an investigator at this point. I just like to ask questions. Yep figure out commonalities and different things like that. I find it interesting because I feel like more of the people that I talk to came from a background where they didn't have where you, what you had. I think that sometimes the middle class damages 
even more so because there's a lot of limiting mindsets there. Can you talk to me a little bit about like the money mindset that you had growing up? Like, was it limiting at all? Was it expansive? Like what, like what was that whole, you know, process for you? Yeah. So I recall money generally being tight. Again, my mother didn't work. Uh, My dad did as a broker income for him was somewhat lumpy. He didn't have a salary. It was like, Hey, it's a good year. Get a big deal. Then maybe a lean year, then maybe a good year. So Money was, yeah, I guess generally tight. I don't think we spent, uh, uh, you know, I don't think my parents spent in any sort of crazy way. I can still remember going to the local discount. It was like a local bakery that supplied the local grocery stores. But if like bread didn't sell in, I don't know, two days or four days or whatever, they would take it back. And then so we would go, we would buy some at the grocery store, but I remember going with my mother and my sister in the car to go to this discount bread place to purchase uh, bread at a discount. So money was tight. I'm not going to say, oh, we were poor, but my parents definitely watched, uh, watched pennies. And in fact, one of the things that got me making money, I believe when I was about 11, was that I wanted some, I think what I wanted was some Puma tennis shoes. Uh, maybe Nike was just coming up. Puma seemed to be the, the big thing. And my parents weren't going to buy it because tennis shoes were uh, half the price at Kmart. So I went out and I did, well, I did two things. I started shoveling snow. There was plenty of that in the Denver winters as an 11-year-old. Then I started mowing lawns and bought those uh, fancy tennis shoes for $20 instead of 10 <laughs> Bought myself a nicer bike and bought myself some Levi's jeans instead of the discount uh, Tough Skins <laughs> jeans right, right. That, that I think Kmart or Target, I think it was Kmart brand. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
anyway, so I started working relatively young. I also had a paper route at about age 11, delivering the Denver Post. But while I did spend some of that hard-earned money myself, my parents did also make me save most of it. And uh, then as a teenager, when I was uh, earning, quote unquote, real money, making $5 an hour at an architectural firm in downtown Denver for a summer job, almost all that money was saved for college. Maybe I got to spend, I don't know, 10% of it or something like that. Hmm. But as I grew into making more money, the focus was on education and that I was going to help pay for college. And uh, I think collectively with various summer jobs, I I paid for about 15% of my college and uh, my folks had to go into debt to pay for the other 85%. So anyway, that, that's just a little bit about the, the money that, that shaped me uh, or yeah. the money mindset. It wasn't well, sloshing around. Uh, it was to be treated uh, with, with respect and, and worked, uh, worked for. Yeah, yeah, totally. What are your general thoughts now around college and going into debt to go to college? It's generally a fine thing. The only sort of small print to that or fine print is that frankly, there seem to be a lot of sort of sillier college majors than when I was in college 30 something years ago now. I don't know, maybe I'm a cynic or maybe I just wasn't paying attention to all the majors, but going to college to try and get a degree in, uh, you know, alternative dispute resolution or Sanskrit basket weaving or something like that, (laughs) I don't think it it, is a good thing. And college isn't for everybody. And there's no shame in that. Many folks are much better set to go to like a a vocational school and learn how to work on engines or airplanes or other sorts of jobs. And those are perfectly fine. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody quote unquote has to go to college. I think it's important always to be improving yourself and getting some sort of education. So generally a good thing, but don't squander that time or that money and go 50,000 into debt and have a degree in uh, analyzing poetry or something. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, there's so, and it's funny too, because a lot of those like trades, like those trade type jobs pay better than most of the desk jobs that sure. people get coming out of college. But yeah. then there, there's such like yeah. a, such a weird like negativity, air of negativity around that. Like, well, you're a welder, you're just doing that. And I have this office and it's like, well, well which one's better? Like, <laughs> yeah. that, that guy's not in debt yeah. and he earned while he learned. Yeah, exactly. He makes more money than you do. So like, I don't, yeah. there just seems to be like this culture of like applauding only this certain career route and then not applauding if you go this other career route or if you, if you decide to just go into sales instead of going to college, like there's this negativity that's built around that. It's just very, very interesting to me. So I just kind of wanted to get, get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you, you'd do better to have, have a degree in underwater welding and go work on an oil rig in the Gulf, underwater welding rather than underwater basket weaving. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so between the time that you graduated college and before you answer this question, tell us really quick, what did you go to college for? I went to the University of Pennsylvania, got into an Ivy League school and got a degree in economics, economics and also okay. minored in entrepreneurial management at the Wharton School of Business there. So I had kind of a liberal arts background, but I like knew how to balance the balance sheet and knew, knew a little bit about accounting and marketing and, and other things uh, as well. Okay. I went into business right out of college. So that's what I was going to ask. So you went directly into business. So for the 20 years between when you started investing in real estate and when you graduated college, walk us through that period of time. Yeah. So I spent most of my 20s uh, basically being the guy behind the spreadsheet. I was a financial analyst. I worked with a venture capital firm. I worked with a, a management consultancy called Bain & Company. 
And I worked for Viacom, a big media and entertainment company in an operating finance role. Then I went to business school, uh, went to Wharton for my MBA, and then came out to the left coast, to San Francisco, and worked for about a decade, basically most of my 30s, uh, working in high tech for three different startups, three different venture-backed businesses. All in like a financial analyst type role or? No, sorry, let me be clear. No, I, I was at that point a sales guy. I went from being uh, the guy behind the spreadsheet in my 20s to being uh, the guy with the expense account in my 30s. I was in sales. Cool. Which one did you enjoy more? Probably more the sales part. <laughs> okay. Both, you know, both are necessary. Yeah, certainly happy to have had the financial uh, discipline as well. Hey, what's up, fellow and future networkers? Want to listen to Build Your Network a day early? Download the Himalaya app and follow the show for exclusive first access. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters, aka me, some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free. It's the easiest platform to use, and they're adding cool new features every single day. So go to the App Store, download Himalaya, that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A, and don't forget to follow Build Your Network once you're there. So between that time, you're doing a bunch of these, like, like, and like for the financials and then also selling, that's a really long period of life. And then probably from 20 to 30 is like the most life discovery that you do. Tell me like a couple of the most important lessons that you learned in that time period. Well, I think if I have a fault, and I certainly have many, you can't be too loyal to a bad situation. There's some things you just can't fix. This became really a little more clear in my 30s with a couple of those startups. If you've got a fundamentally, if you're part of a, say, in this case, a company that is just in a very weak position in the market, just being loyal to it and redoubling your efforts and not looking for work else, elsewhere is probably not a good thing. The environment that I grew up in was much more, again, my formative years as a child was, was much more that, oh, you know, you should be very grateful for anyone that gives you a job. And, you know, there's certainly truth to that. But if you find yourself, say, with a company where it's just kind of in a weak position, it's just not going to go well. So believe me, the, the, the company, it's not the 1950s anymore. There's no lifetime employment. The companies aren't going to be loyal to you. And you probably shouldn't show a lot of loyalty to a company where the handwriting's on the wall and the business just isn't going to work out. Yeah, no, I love that piece of advice. That has always amazed me how many companies like expect their employees to bleed their colors. And then as soon as it doesn't make sense anymore, it's like, well, we have to let this whole department go. You know, it's just like back to all this blind loyalty, but then it's not, it's not returned. So I appreciate bringing that up. Although there is some credibility to obviously being loyal to a company that takes care of you and stuff. But you can never expect somebody else to have your best interests in mind. Like you have to have your, like your best interests and your family's best interests in mind first and then be loyal to a company because I guarantee you the company's thinking the same thing. Like they have their own interests first and then they have the interest of their employees. So as long as it makes sense for them, they'll be great to you. But as soon as it doesn't make sense, then they won't be. So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think a lot of people get in this mindset of like, well, they look at it as, as job security, right? Like, well, I have a job and I've been here for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years now or 20 years now. So I don't need to go do the activities like everybody else needs to do. Like I don't need to go out and mail, like build relationships with other people in my industry. I don't need to go out and improve my skill sets. I don't need to go do this or that because I already have this job security here. 
but then like, what happens when you don't? Well, I do. And okay, but what happens when you don't, <laughs> you know, because it's always a possibility. So can you tell me like a little bit about your like skill development during that period of time as well? Like, were you focused on developing certain skills or diving into other areas of personal development? Like, how were you constantly challenging yourself during those times? Some of those jobs came with at least some form of, of formal training. So that helped. I was also just learning from other people at those companies, other people that maybe did similar jobs, but in different divisions. So, so that, that was most of it. You know, I think it, it's often in many ways easier to learn things now that there's much more sort of distance learning and online things. That wasn't so much the case in the 1990s, and early 2000s. But that was mostly it. I, I guess it was a, a mostly on the job training, but, but certainly some formalized training that those a couple of those companies provided. Gotcha. Gotcha. So now coming into the later part of your career, at what point did you just say, hey, I'm done with all of this stuff. I'm going to start my own venture and start investing into mobile home parks. How did that whole transition come about? Yeah. So at no point did I ever say like, hey, I'm giving up all these sexy Silicon Valley stock options and I'm just going to go buy trailer parks. <laughs> it was a progression for me. I went through the dot-com boom and bust of like 2000, 2001. I came out of that really a little more focused on value investing. And personal finance is never quite black or white. But let's say to the extent it is, at least for me, I felt value investing was the way to go. I was already uh, an investor in uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And I'm a big, big fan of his teachings obviously not in his league as an investor, but I try to be. <laughs> I learn as much as I can from, from the Oracle of Omaha. Anyway, so what happened was I kind of wanted to diversify away from high tech. And I thought, hey, let me buy an apartment building. I'll fix it up. Uh, new kitchens, say, make it better for tenants. I'll bump the rents for me, make it better for me. So I kind of was thinking that I wanted some more stable, passive income Again, rather than doing more high-tech uh, investing and, and more publicly traded stocks. Anyway, so then just in researching multifamily, I stumbled upon mobile home parks, which are this quirky little niche within the broader world of traditional multifamily, which is apartment building. So I, I kind of stumbled into it. I actually took me a little over a year to buy my first park and begin generating some passive income. I was still working at that third startup. So I had my feet in, in both worlds, both the W-2 world, as it were, as an employee, and then also in the passive income world, generating some profit from that first mobile home park that I bought. Gotcha. And, and how long ago was that? That was the year 2007, 12 years ago. Okay. So like coming like right off of the economy collapsing, basically, right? Well, I kind of went right into it. The housing, the wheels came off the housing market really beginning the next year. That was 2008, 2009. So as you can see, Travis, my, my timing is impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think I, I bought the property right. So it, the general problems in the economy didn't affect me. My park remained 95 to 100% full. I bumped up rents. I started bringing in additional mobile homes and refurbishing them to expand the supply of affordable housing. So I got through that period really just fine. That's the power of making the right purchase, right? So that really speaks to the knowledge base that you had to have going into that. So you said it took you a year to buy your first park. Is that because of you were educating yourself? You were looking at deals, trying to shop the right one? Like what was it that you were doing there in that year period to prep to be able to make a good purchase that withstands an economic collapse like that? Yeah, it, it was all 
of the above. It was education and then beginning to put in offers and, and you know, getting outbid on some deals. So I started networking. I, I built up an unofficial advisory board of about 10 people that owned mobile home parks. So I would, I would send them deals and I would say, you know, hey, I'm thinking of buying this one. What do you think? And they would say, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, or they'd say, you know, Jefferson, I don't know, but the key issue is X. You go figure out issue X, and then you'll know if that's going to be a good property for you to buy. So um, that was a big part of, of my education was just networking and finding other people that were already in the business, already doing what I wanted to do, and just getting their uh, generally free <laughs> advice on what I was doing. And how did you get in touch with those people? Like, how did you find access to those people? Yeah, so a fair amount of it was online. There were and are, you know, a number of websites that specialize in this quirky niche of real estate. But I'd also just talk to people. You know, I mentioned it like to one guy at my church. And he said, oh, that's interesting. My dad owned a park. And that park was what sent our whole family to Europe for a fancy summer vacation every year. <laughs> you know, here's my dad's number. Call him. So uh, it was just putting it out there, just random conversations like that, and then also specifically finding people online. But that's how I, how I built up that network. And uh, after you bought your first deal, how long did it take you to buy a second deal? About five years. Probably could have and should have done it a little faster. But uh, I also started consulting. So I ended up after owning that first property for a year, I left that startup and I started consulting to some other high net worth families that have interests in the manufactured housing space. And then I bought my subsequent park. Okay. So we're, are we using your own money for these or using investor money outside? No, those first two were all me. And then I started raising money about a year later and have now bought 23 other mobile home parks with other people's money. OPM, as they say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The power and magic of OPM. How have you found it scaling up that business? So initially, it was just like, hey, I'm going to invest in here, and I'm going to invest in here. And then it was like, oh, wow, there's actually something to this. And then in 2013, you co-found Park Street Partners. And now you've got over 20 mobile home parks that, that uh, now you manage, take on other investment capital. How have you found like scaling that up? Was it, was it a pretty difficult process or once you got something going, did it kind of snowball on itself? We didn't do it right. We kind of went ready, fire, aim. The ready was raising money. The fire was buying parks. And the aim was then hiring people to help us run the parks and do the accounting. So my new partnership, Park Avenue Partners, I'm going to do a little differently. I mean, I've still got everything going with, with the previous partnership. But this one, I'm going to go ready, aim, fire. So right now, I'm raising money. Next quarter, I'll start hiring people, both asset management to help me run the parks and, and actually renovate houses, the mobile homes, and, and again, expand the supply of affordable housing and folks just to help me with accounting. So I'm going to get qualified people with prior industry experience hired on much sooner. I think that'll make the growth curve much smoother. And uh, do you guys take on investment capital from uh, accredited investors only? Or is it like anybody that has a certain amount of money can jump in? Or what does that look like? Yeah, we're regulated by the SEC. So we can only take money from accredited investors. That's folks basically with a million and up. Yeah, I was going to say, and for people who, yeah, yeah, who don't know, tell the definition of that. Yeah, it's a million and up net worth or 
not and, or people that make 200000 a year as an individual, or if married, then who make 300000 a year if you're married. So the million and up, or the two hundred, or the 300 if married, then you're an accredited investor and then you can invest. The other option, though, is if somebody finds a good deal, a good off-market mobile home park, then uh, we can all buy it together. They could invest uh, beside our fund, not technically in it, but beside our fund. Uh, one way that non-accredited investors could participate if, if they find a, a good enough deal. Okay, so do your returns depend on how, what the deal looks like? Or uh, like, like, is there, when, when somebody gives you money, is it just into one fund that goes and purchases different parks and you have a set return for that fund? Or is it like per park that you're trying to raise money for each park individually and they all have their own separate rates of return and stuff like that? We don't do deal by deal. We do the funds, at least that's what makes sense now. Yeah. So our investors get a combined uh, profit pool. They, they get their share of those combined profits. They get geographic diversification. Those 25 parks are coast to coast, certainly with a very heavy weighting to the Midwest. But basically, while our investors are making a focused investment in mobile home parks, they do get the diversification of owning parks, you know, probably in at least a half a dozen different states. That's that's what we that's what we offer investors, and they tend to to do pretty well. Kind of earn earn mid teens uh, rates of return in what's a fairly safe and trend favored asset class. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So so mid teens rate of return is is obviously insanely high, especially in an inflated market like the one that we have right now. Right. So in the future, is there like a, hey, we're going to sell these and you're going to get equity percentage and all that kind of stuff, too? Or is it mostly focused on the cash flow? Well, they're getting equity right right from the get go. We raise equity investments from accredited investors. We then pool the money. We then go to banks or the CMBS market or the agencies, Fannie and Freddie and, and borrow uh, debt. But but yeah, in, in investors are participating they're, they're, We're all partners. I take no fees whatsoever. <laughs> Even when I have to personally guarantee the debt with my house and my two cars, again, we don't. Um, I don't charge fees. We're we're just true, true partners in the deal, and we all split the profits uh, among ourselves. So we're we're all 100% aligned. Love it, love it. What's been like the most interesting lesson that you've learned doing all of this in the last few years? You know, when I got into this business, I didn't really have the perspective. I didn't have what what I consider to be the the quote unquote right uh, mindset. I came into it again, as I mentioned, a big fan of Warren Buffett. I viewed myself buying those few first couple of parks as being a value investor. And and these were things I was, again, doing with my own capital. And obviously, it took me many years to really think, hey, why don't I raise outside capital and be a money manager of value investments? But again, that was a shift to then really think about not just doing this with my own capital, but raising outside capital. So um, that held me back for several years. I had to do it all over again. I still probably would have bought bought in with my own money, but built up a track record maybe over one year and then gone out and tried to raise outside capital. So um, that was yet another mistake I made. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now you have the fund, right? So do you personally put money elsewhere besides just mobile home park investments. I know obviously like the way people invest with you is in your mobile home park stuff, but are you also trying to buy like single families or multifamily outside of that arena? No, (laughs) 
I am 100% focused on mobile home park. Cool. What was like the deciding factor on that? You know, again, I was looking originally for apartment buildings. As Buffett says, uh, stay within your circle of competence. I had always lived in an apartment building or a single family house. So I sort of figured I knew something about them. But in researching it, what I discovered is that this is, uh, for instance, the only niche of real estate where the supply is actually shrinking. So basically every city and county has made it illegal over the last, I don't know, perhaps 40 years, made it illegal to develop any new mobile home parks. And then let's say roughly 1% of mobile home parks get redeveloped every year into some higher and better use. It'd be a self-storage facility, a condo, a hotel, what have you. So the competition is going away. That's a dramatic tailwind. Uh, that's very different than really any other niche in real estate where, at least when times are good, they're always building more apartment buildings, more single-family houses, more office, more retail, more, more, more. So this niche is actually shrinking, and that's just an incredible benefit to those of us that own the remaining mobile home parks and to have, have competition slowly going away. And then I'll just add, you know, in general, again, we're helping folks own their own homes. They become more responsible homeowners with an owner's mentality rather than a renter's. But by virtue of them then owning their own house, they own uh, those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs. So our repair and maintenance budget is very low, about a third what it is, uh, say, compared with traditional apartment building investing. We really view this as being a parking lot business. Again, we, we want to help the folks own the homes, have them pay rent into the land. But frankly, it's not that hard to maintain the land. We're not, by and large, we're not maintaining those improvements, the actual mobile homes themselves. That's what our tenants own. Yeah, man, I love it. We, I could talk to you about real estate for a really long time, but I know that my audience is really really here to get a lot of the, the networking nuggets. So let's go ahead and kind of shift the conversation here. We've, we've touched on it throughout the show, and it's very interesting because even though I sometimes like at the beginning of conversations, I don't go into it looking for a networking type of a topic. It seems to always be sprinkled throughout the story of anybody that I talk to that's remotely successful. So I, I like to kind of dive in at the end to kind of pick up parts of your story that are really interesting to me that seem to be accelerated because of the network that you had built up. So to get moving along that line of thought here, the first question and the question that I ask every single guest that comes on my show is, Jefferson, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Probably who, <laughs> because of the people, then you always have somebody that can at least tell you what you don't know and help educate you. And then you have both the who and the what. <laughs> So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of who you know rather than what you know. Yeah, and it, it, like I said, it's sprinkled throughout the conversation, right? So you're talking about, yeah, I, t I spent that, first, that, that full year trying to get educated, looking at deals, examining deals, but you didn't say that you put it up into like a deal calculator or that you like put it in a software to see if it was a good deal. You said you built a network of like 10 people that you trusted to give you decent advice on it because they'd already been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. So now you have a group of people that know a lot about something that you don't know a lot about. And then you send deals them and glean from their experience, from their knowledge, and it built up your knowledge base enough to where you're finally confident enough to pull the trigger and get your own thing, which is now turned into 
20 plus mobile home parks across the entire country. And what's the value now, if you're allowed to say that, the total value of all the parks you guys own? Oh, well, at acquisition price, it was around uh, $56 million. So I, I would think we probably have $10 million in additional profits on, on top of that. But it's, it's well, well over $50 million in real estate. Yeah, so now coming up to that point, like to me, it seems pretty easy to look back and join up the dots of how you made it here. And it seemed to be like just a relationship after relationship, learning after learning, getting mentored. Like even when you were, when we were talking about your experience in the job world and the financial stuff that you were doing and the sales stuff that you were doing, I asked, Hey, how are you learning at that time? And your answer was, you know, I got around people in those jobs that taught me a lot of stuff. So it seems to always come back to this mentorship, to people, to getting around people who know how to do it better than you. And then it seems to me at that point, Jefferson, that you always learn at an accelerated rate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's always the goal. Learn as fast as you can. And uh, I think I, I've always learned by doing and by being surrounded by other doers, not to poo-poo uh, book learning, but uh, for me, again, being surrounded by, by people that, that, that are doers and then helping me do. That's always uh, been, at least for me, that the, the way to learn as fast as possible. Yeah, it's funny. You know, a lot of people say that, you know, success is a marathon. And then other people will say, oh, no, it's a sprint. And I think it's more of a combination of the two. It's, it's a marathon, meaning that it's going to be a really long time. But you can't just jog throughout life or you're never going to like hit the next level. I think that it's a marathon made up of a bunch of tiny sprints of like huge energy, huge learning curves, huge acceleration, and then like a period of, of kind of resting a little bit and then, and then gaining some energy again and then huge energy and huge uh, momentum and all this stuff coming in because I think success loves speed and what you've been able to build since 2013 starting this to go from owning just a couple by yourself to now managing over $50 million in real estate over across the entire country is absolutely incredible. And if you didn't put in the work and accelerate that timeline, then I think it'd be a, a completely different story. I think you're right. So moving into now kind of the last segment here, I wish we could talk a little bit more about networking. But before we do that, let me ask you just one more networking question and then we'll move into the last segment. If stripping it all away, if you had to boil it down to one tip, somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, man, I, they missed the first part of the episode and they're, they got to take off. You got two minutes to give them like your top networking tip, top relationship building tip. What would that be? Oh, probably just find a mentor or a couple of mentors to tell you what you don't know, <laughs> tell you what they do know, and uh, just learn from people that are in the business and have already uh, made mistakes. And uh, you'll still probably make your own, but, but don't make theirs. <laughs> and uh, again, just, just learn from, from other folks that are already doing what you want to be doing in six months or a year. Love it. So let's move on now into the last segment, something I like to call the random round, just a few really quick random questions and some quick random answers. You ready? Okay. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? I think it, it would probably be fun to operate some sort of operating business uh, that, that was providing some social good. I don't know, try and blend profit with some social mission. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Probably my namesake, Thomas Jefferson learn all about what shaped him and what went into the American Revolution. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Some podcasts and some books. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Oh, get up, get, get myself showered, ready for the day, go downstairs. I, 
uh, greet my family. They're often up before me. Sometimes I'll change a diaper or two <laughs> and uh, get something to eat, hopefully with protein in it, and then I get to work. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, I have no idea. I do have some downloaded uh, r- r- range of uh, mostly house music for, for pump-up stuff, but I don't know, some of it's like Tiesto or Oakenfold. I'm going to have a hard time coming with, with a specific name on that. What is something that you are not very good at? Managing my own time. And as we get everything wrapped up here, Jefferson, what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most? Oh, yeah. Uh, just come to parkavenuepartners.com. That'll tell you more about the new mobile home park fund. There's an intake form right on the home page. If you do want to contact me, that comes right to me. I'll also throw out our mobile home park investors.com website that links you into our podcast. I started the industry's first uh, mobile home park investing podcast, got the biggest group on LinkedIn, almost 5,000 people networking there and the industry calendar of events and all that's just right off mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Perfect, perfect. So head over to mobilehomeparkinvestors.com to learn more about Jefferson, find out more about this uh, really, really lucrative uh, section of the real estate investment world and uh, promise, I promise you that real estate needs to be in your long-term investment and wealth building strategies. So Jefferson, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. We had a fantastic time talking with you. Okay. Thank you, Travis. Have a great night. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. You hear my guests and I talk a lot about masterminds here on Build Your Network. They are literally what I attribute most of the new quality relationships in my life to. If this is a new term to you, or you've always kind of wondered exactly what a mastermind is or what it does or how much they are, how to find one, all those types of details, you are definitely going to want to take my free mastermind course. It is everything you need to know about masterminds in just six short lessons. It's 100% free. So there's literally no reason to not at least see what it's about. Just head over to travischapel.com to grab that course and start today. Have a fantastic rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.